0: <clears throat> okay so uh,
1: Wait can we start the show normally And then can you do it you, Chance you say welcome and you introduce us And then you do your bit No
0: Megan sit your white ass down And learn yes. <laughs> yeah, see, no. okay, That's our that's fucking intro That's no. actually the intro now We're not yeah. cutting that Okay, so I have this idea, right, where, uh, you know how there's, like, white people writing books and pretending to be indigenous so they can write indigenous books? Yes. Uh, I have the same idea, Mm -hmm. except you know how I'm indigenous? Mm -hmm. Um, You are? Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, We're going to do the same thing, except (laughs) uh, I'm going to write books as if I'm a white person. Okay. And uh, we're going to call it the Mayo Tapes. Mm-hmm. I like so you're going to write a a coming
2: of age story of, uh, you know, like these two kids. They're in college and they're trying to like they're fucking all the time, naturally, Uh, Mm -hmm. but they're like grappling with, you know, the fact that they're bougie, like upper crust intellectuals in this like, you know, fracturing and decaying uh, society that we live in. Uh, uh, and they sort of decide at the end, like it's sort of the climax of the, of the book is that they decide that, uh, the way they live is okay and they they shouldn't change anything.
0: No, actually I was going to start the book with, uh, you know, like it, it's going to start with elementary school maybe. And the kid gets dropped off at school and the parents like, Oh, have a good day, honey. And then the kid's really embarrassed. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're like, damn, I, I, I wish I was like all the other kids and less white you know like this white stuff is bringing me down okay so then the kid starts getting really into like you know other cultures and is really trying to find themselves and kind of has like a Dolazal moment mm. uh, but the 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 moral of the story is that tradition will bring you back to being grounded and you can always find family and love in being white and and owning mm. it so it's like a northman prequel well, okay. it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, when people try to like, they're like, oh man, my Vietnamese parents make really weird food and I'm really embarrassed to bring it to school. I wish I'm I was like the other kids. am always saying that. <laughs> except, except, uh, they're white. So mm. like, they're like, oh man, I can't believe we had pizza again for the seventh day in a row. That's so embarrassing. Uh, if only my parents made like curry or something, but then they get so far removed from their whiteness that eventually they feel like they aren't fulfilled. Mm, okay. And uh, and so one day they they have to go back and they have to they have to, you know, look back to tradition and family values that their white parents instilled upon them. And then they start wearing like polo shirts and playing <laughs> golf and stuff. <laughs> is, is this like a postmodern, like metatextual That's thing cool. where like you
2: are an indigenous man mm. per- masquerading as a white person writing about a white person masquerading as other races?
0: There, yeah. I feel like there there is a lot of, of layers here. I think I think I want to do it in order to prove to others that I can be I can be white too. Mm. Okay.
1: Yeah, you can put yourself yeah, in that and head That space. like,
0: you know, we're all the same yeah. and I don't see colors. Yeah.
2: Especially. You could white. do a little sort of jog walk in front of a car to make sure that it gets through the intersection faster. That could be yeah. you.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I can give them like the oop. Oop, oh, oh, oop. Oh, Oops, sorry. oh, uh, <laughs> <sure there."> Yeah. <laughs> I can hit them with the, ooh, that looks good. Oh, nice. and, well, uh, I'm happy
2: to be your consultant for this. You know how, like, in, in some books, they're like, oh, thank you so much. Like, so-and-so yeah. Tommy, aerospace engineering so I could write the margin yeah. or whatever. You could just yeah, be, like, be,
0: like, yeah. I'd be like, yeah, so the kid shows up in grade eight and they're wearing a dashiki. And you'd be like, um, white people don't really wear dashikis. And I'd be like, oh, man, I had, I had no idea. I got. I'm I mean, so oh sorry. To
3: be fair, I did wear one, but it like I was fat, and I thought it was a muumuu. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I walked shikis, into like, yeah, these are the muumuu
0: of the world, really. Yeah,
3: and the teacher was like, "Damn, this kid is radical."
0: <laughs> and in so reality, I
3: just couldn't walk upstairs.
0: So yeah, I think I would need like you know a cultural uh, liaison throughout mm-hmm. the whole thing. You won't get paid. There will be emotional labor, but I think. If it keeps me away from, you know, mischaracterizing white people as actually having a culture, then I think it would be beneficial to the book. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely provide that for you. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Yeah. Uh, welcome to the Lately Capitalism Show. Ha, I'm <laughs> saying it now, five minutes in. <laughs> we Screw
2: have an you. intro that plays. Whoa.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, Megan.
1: Only on the radio. Only on the radio. No, Does the intro you play? talking Dean? about? You, I thought you learned this when you That's edited last true. week and freaked out. The podcast always
3: starts with it. Oh, you mean like the actual like copy thing? Yeah.
1: We yeah. have a song that That's plays in the podcast. And we have like an intro with all of our voices oh, that I plays see. on the radio. So podcast listeners, if you want a bonus content, which is a minute of us saying our names and live, what the show is, listen what to our the radio. schedules are. Yeah.
3: Where the best place to kidnap us is. Yeah. We, we put all that in there for the real Kingston heads that, uh, you know, they just need to have that information.
1: Listening on the radio, I will say, is probably not the ideal form of listening to the show because it is just always cutting off the last five minutes so it ends mid joke. <laughs> um and then you just don't is get that the last how you bit. Edit it? <laughs> that's how you like I, I cut it at a part that's like makes a bit of sense, but it's still like I have to cut the last five minutes of the episode. It's so always it's a... like you're just missing keys. Yeah, it's info. like a big
0: Jesse punchline and then it just ends at some point. Yeah, and then really you don't know jokes. if it was supposed to happen yeah. or not. No. F- f-
1: Yeah, and then I'm sure the radio listeners are like, is that the end of their show? The answer is no, but it is (laughs) for you. Yeah, you don't
3: get any more. To be fair, we would be on time, but Megan has to cut so many of the offensive things she says that it really throws our sense of timing off. Like that burp you heard in the beginning of the show, that was Megan. She wants to cut it. Now I've made reference to it, so she can. Also,
1: what if I did and then you just sounded like a silly goose? okay, no problem.
3: Megan let out a very loud belch to start the show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> was it Dean? I don't Not even know you. who it was. Uh, okay. Checkmate. Dean, are you having problems? So, can today? we talk
2: about the important <laughs> news today? Um, yeah. Can we stop, you know, we... our own petty dramas and try to look towards something that actually matters? <laughs> okay. um, now, so, see, I was going to do like an ironic joke where, like, oh, like you know, Dean says something that's actually stupid and doesn't matter. Uh, but I do feel like we really do have to talk about
3: Roe v. Wade. Uh, yeah. Even though it's this is your fault, no. you yeah, you did good. this, Dean. I, yeah, you specifically, Dean. The first thing I I said. Beep, beep beep of beep
0: beep did this. So if you have issues with Dean, you can go to the address I just listed and let him know in person. It was crazy. Dean texted me and he was like, "Hey, I just did this thing," and then I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> Dean! Did so you do that? I did a thing. <laughs> Would you be mad
3: at me if I overturned abortion rights?" And he <laughs> sent like the the big eyed emoji. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like he, he this sent is... out a tweet immediately that said, "Uh, so that's okay." <laughs> like, like Roe is
2: just for the next, um, you know, increasingly short amount of time going to be a gut punch that we just get again and again and again because you know, n- news similar to this came out like two months ago, and everyone was like, "That's the end of Roe," you know the.
1: Well, that was the Texas stuff. Yeah, the Texas stuff, stuff and they, happened. They thought it was going to go yeah. farther, and yeah. it is. No, like it, it's going And that's farther what than I'm Texas. saying. Is that I think like, it's continual like, like,
2: Kavanaugh goes to the court, and everyone's like, that's the end of Roe. And then Barrett, that's the end of Roe. It's just, yeah. at, at every step of this process, like, the end result has been assured. Uh, but you still feel the full weight of it every time uh, mm-hmm. something like this happens. Mm-hmm. We're, of course, talking about the leaked uh, Alito um Battle Angel
3: yeah draft memo yeah draft memo which basically said they now have the votes required to actually like challenge and overturn Roe v Wade which yeah. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with but that's a landmark piece of American legislature that essentially code well it's not codified but it- decriminalized abortion and the democrats had 50 years to codify it to where it could not be overturned and they just never which was promised by obama
2: and i think biden uh said something at least along the lines i don't think he outright said he was going to codify it but um definitely said he was going to amp up abortion protection none of that has happened uh i know it's hard
1: our diamond joe it's just it's also like just so disheartening and upsetting to see like all of this happening at the same time that they're also trying to repeal like protections for any members of mm-hmm. the LGBT community. It's literally like just yeah. full undoing any sort of social progress that's been made yeah. in the last like fifty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like especially
2: disheartening because uh, you know, this happened because of five decades of like direct uh campaigning by religious radicals within that country and they were completely successful the system works Mm. just never in our favor but like you can if you have a dedicated group of people willing to pour a ton of money and energy into a single issue can you know rewrite
3: american history uh dean it sounds to me like they voted and that's what Won them the day. Yeah, they, so, they've also the voted a, a fair bit harder. Yeah. yeah. The takeaway is, uh, for you Canadian listeners, vote. Okay? Uh, that's going to fix all the problems. A, a bad craftsman... <laughs> Love to his, punch me a ballot. His ballot, yeah. But, you know, a good craftsman works with the ballot they're given... To you know, deliver the valuable vote from all sorts of distances. Maybe it's right in the voting booth. Uh, Maybe it's from a half mile away. Maybe you've got a uh,
2: duck
0: blind, like
3: a a magnifying scope, and it's like a mile and a half away.
0: Whatever you can do, maybe it's an anti-tank ballot.
1: (laughs) There are obviously a lot of critiques of the like only vote, like voting is your only political action. Like that is stupid, obviously. But for things like this, where, like, the Supreme Court is determined by who's in power, and it's obviously, like, a social issue that's a pretty severe difference between Democrats and Republicans, like, I can see why they're ta- talking well, about They're voting. talking about voting. Like, voting is relevant the midterms to this situation. Are coming up. This is the
2: greatest thing yeah. that's ever happened to the Democrats. I know but, like, that they're, the, they're talking like, about voted like, voting that had happened six years ago, <laughs> blaming it on the American public then, when the people on the Supreme Court who... Yes, of course, uh, Trump puts Kavanaugh on, puts Barrett on, and that, like, secures the right wing dominating the Supreme Court for the rest of our lifetimes. But, uh, you know, like, these are, it's an inherently undemocratic system of lifetime appointments uh, that no agree, no one yeah. votes on. It's just appointed by, you know, other political figures. Also, so, voting for the like Democrats. to say, like voting is the way to fix the Supreme Court is, at its face, like you're just taking the person that you're speaking to as a moron. You're just like, yeah. oh, like you're a fucking pa- patsy yeah. that I can tell
3: anything. Think about so all the times. I'll tell you as to well, vote. Obama had eight years to put a Democrat in the Supreme Court. Just never bothered. He's like, well, quite frankly, I think that would be divisive. Everything. And we,
2: I did vote for Joseph Robinette <laughs> Biden, and. He is in the White House and I did succeed, but he still refuses to write an executive order that would just fully decriminalize, decriminalize and codify uh, abortion into law. Uh, of well, course, this, you could say the Supreme Court could overturn that. Right. And th- a- <laughs>
1: they, yeah, well, yeah, they that very something? well could.
2: But that would still delay that decision at least another year. Right. Like that puts time on the clock. Well, I
1: hope they try. They're not something. going to. No, Joe. Yeah. Joe
3: Biden did write to the Supreme Court, but he got it mixed up, and he gave him like the lunch order he meant to give to the intern. So just like it gets to it gets to the oh, Supreme I thought,
0: Court. I, no, thought you, I thought you meant fresh Supreme.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but
0: uh, important just,
2: order. He, he wants president. to go to Friendlies and get the yeah. Monster Sunday. He says he wants an Irish
3: hamburger. Does anybody know what this means? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's <two> just, <laughs> the bread. Meanwhile, yeah, it's like a whatever. Is it Shake Shack? Is that the New York thing? Just like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, anybody ordering uh, fully protected abortion rights? Uh, we've got fully protected abortion rights on six. There you go. Yeah. A little, <laughs> little restaurant pickup joke. Yeah. Uh,
0: I, think, I think the whole thing is um, an absolute mess. And I think it's it's kind of gross. Like, I understand what both Megan and Dean are saying. Like, it makes sense to be upset with the system as a whole. Because what the fuck has voting ever done other than delay or, you know, propagate things that you want it to happen? Mm -hmm. And this is coming from someone who votes regardless because I just don't care. Um, But at the same time, you know, certain representatives do make things better than they could be. But at the same time, the only thing I think of when stuff like this happens is how many people come out of the woodwork and say absolutely deplorable shit in retaliation to this kind of thing. So something like saying that, you know, the only thing you can do politically is vote. And like people do have that sentiment. Megan doesn't have that sentiment. I know she doesn't have that sentiment. And that's not what she's arguing. But there's people on Twitter that do Mm. that are literally like the only thing we can do Mm. is just if I think my ballot is worth a thousand times more than it is, then by God, it will be. Because for some reason, if I if I, you know, believe in it, it's going to happen. And you almost Um, feel bad for people who like, especially like non-politicians or like
2: non-pundits who like earnestly believe that that is like the sole avenue of agency that they have available to them. Yeah. Uh, It's it's uh, depressing. Because they're
1: obviously really deeply hurt by these issues. And they're like, oh, I just can't wait for the midterms.
2: You know, like that. Yeah. How does that not make you want to. I you know, not also, vote
0: ever again anymore. I don't know. But it's it's also made your your brain has kind of been programmed to think like that that's not only is it the easiest route, but it's been marketed towards you as the only route because everything is uncivil. Everything <laughs> is, you know, not a good idea to, you know, be out on the streets and and voice your opinion or to, you know, uh, get a group going where you can actually make some change within your local politics to try to move that into a larger movement. Well, all of that is a do great things. deal
2: harder, right?
0: Well, that's but that's yeah. what I mean. So you've been you've been sold that the easiest option is also the only option because everything else is either too much work or it's uh you know uncivil to do so. Like it's it's a bad idea and it'll look bad upon you. But mm-hmm. then the other thing that I think of is the people that come out of the woodwork. And immediately go um, like, oh, my God, if our RGB were around, this wouldn't be happening right now. Or, (laughs) you know, as if. Yeah. If you just lived to 120,
2: none of this would have happened.
0: (laughs) But but as if. One person needed to be alive in order for you to have proper representation in a system full of fucking thousands of people (laughs) that are making decisions daily. Yeah, no, it was the one person that was the thing that was and that was good that it was one person that had that much power over things. It It wasn't a bad thing. That's not a problem that that was the only person representing me as a human being. The problem is that that person's dead and can't do it anymore. oh my god we're fucked now why didn't we think of this earlier why didn't we have other people in that position and it's like it's it's a shame that again they've been uh they as in like a lot of people and i find myself in this situation a lot too uh have so much faith in something to think that it just needs good people to be working it for in order Mm -hmm. for it to get better and then when those good people aren't around it's bad as if the whole thing isn't set up for people that don't want to represent you or are only in it for malicious reasons to gain benefit in the long term. It has nothing to do with that. Yeah, we and just the need the re- smartest people in the room to be in charge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and the people that reject that idea that that's the case and truly think that the system will work as long as good people are in it, I think, are slow like very much overlooking the amount of times that good people have been in these positions and have either been, uh, ousted, uh, fucking assassinated or completely broken to the point where they completely work against their own interests, let alone the interests of anyone else. Um, because if the system is essentially a monster that you're within and you're saying, if I just like, you know, kill it correctly or work against it, then I will be able to get out of this thing alive. When in reality, it's going to fucking clamp down on you and you're dead. And so is everyone else that was fighting. It doesn't matter. Like it, it, it shouldn't be the one person. Right. So to, to say like, Oh, if RGB was here, this wouldn't be happening is more so poking a hole in the logic that this should be a system in place that determines <laughs> yeah, these. Yeah. Things. We
2: have we've, we've constructed an entire justice system that requires a little Dutch boy to put his finger in the dam. Uh, <laughs> and and if he's not around, then
3: you know then we're, we're fucked. Yeah. yeah, I mean, liberal but the problem always... is, of course, a, a scarcity of Dutch boys that we yeah, could, yeah. you know, liberal use democracies... their fingers create monarchies in miniature where it's always about having that one person ordained to be you know the ruler and the absolute symbol of virtue be it ruth bader ginsburg for the liberals or donald trump for the right you know you have this mythical figure who just their mere presence is going to act as you know this champion for your ideological beliefs even though most of the things you believe in they don't give a shit about like do you think ruth bader ginsburg gave a shit about like any almost anything that like a lot of the liberal people that loved her do it's like no she was like a very someone who had a lot of racist things in her past including like statements on like black law staffers it's like i don't think she's this epic you know champion of uh, racial equity and and equality it's like she's just an old lady who's 1000 years old and for some reason that is who is the sole champion of the liberal ideology (laughs) Yeah, Ooh. even beyond that, I think like the I, the most I'm...
2: important decision she made, according to her, at least on any given day is what she had for lunch. You know, mm. like they, these people are not invested in a larger political
3: project, at least the liberal ones are. The conservative ones seem very well organized. I wouldn't even I would say most of them aren't invested in any large project. It's just. Saying what they need to say and the occasional vote to survive. I wouldn't say there's a lot of like ideological coherency. It's just like, oh, we're paid by these groups to say these things. But deep down, I'm sure most of the people in those positions of power, maybe not now with like the GOP shifting ever roar right word, but for a long time, like conservative politicians. I feel truly just didn't give a shit about most of the things they were voting for. It's just like, oh, I have to check this box. So when I go down to Mississippi, uh, they don't call me a a gay cuck F.A.G. Okay, can do. I will vote to give arms to Saudi Arabia. So
1: no, I don't know. They're pretty like I feel like conservatives have a specific. Yeah. And like I think about. Yeah.
2: Again, just just Roe v. Wade being overturned. Like none of that, you know, is tied to capital. None of that is uh, motivated
3: by... There's huge, huge money that's tied into that. Like, that's a massive, massive... Right, but, like, yes, like, it's... Like,
2: there are donations from, like, rich think tanks and stuff, but those think tanks aren't operating from a, you know, profit motivation. They are operating from an ideological... Mo- I like, don't. I want to if... be able
3: to control women's bodies. Motivation. I'm sure there are definitely like fundamentalist hardliners in there, but I would still argue that capital is what greases the wheels of a lot of, especially the old dyed-in-the-wool conservative groups, where like you, you can't tell me William S. Or sorry, William Buckley wasn't some kind of just like grift and con man. Yeah, he had deplorable beliefs, but he's also like ah, I can just say this shit and make. Back then, $1,000 a day. Wonderful. It's like, I would say both, like, obviously liberals and conservatives, both money motivated, but outside of like smaller, more ideologically devoted sections of the right, for the most part, it's just the most hollow grift that's ever existed. Like,
2: I completely agree. Like, it is all like completely captured by capital. But I'm saying, like, this specific, you know, uh, push against LGBT rights. Uh, and abortion is motivated purely by hardline Protestant uh, religious ideolo- ideology uh, rather than, you know, line go up thinking.
0: Megan, mm-hmm. what were you going I to say so, earlier?
1: Too. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Chance. Um, <laughs> I was I was curious about what you guys think about the notion of just like a Supreme Court or some branch of the government that's like above the house of commons in general because i feel like there is value in having like a branch where if the government does something really stupid then there is like a place to go where you can appeal that and like citizens can bring cases to the supreme court like at least in canada um and i believe in the u.s too uh But then you end up with all these things where they have so much decision making power and can like do whatever they want regardless of what the public wants. So I don't know. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. Because I feel like the whole like having a lifetime thing is supposed to like insulate them from politics, but it obviously doesn't. So then what is the solution if the like government does something really stupid and you want to bring that
0: somewhere? My usual response to that is because the the first thing I think of of a position like that, lifetime appointed, uh, you know, no, voting required right is uh the canadian senate and how they have uh vetoing rights over over laws and and things like that yeah and but also at the same time we spend so much money as a nation to have them and you could argue for what because how Mm -hmm. often do they even use any of their power if not to just like Not even be there. I was gonna say to sit in their chairs.
1: Yeah, just be like a worse house. Yeah, they just they don't they don't
0: show up. So it's like, you know, what what is the point? I think in Canada we have a different situation. Mm -hmm. I I think our Supreme Court, I'm not sure how a lot of it works out, but I know our Senate situation is it's kind of fucked up to have them have the final say when in reality they don't have to be representative of the people that want things to happen. Whereas parties are supposed to be beholden to uh, the vo- the voters and their constituents, whether they do or not is arguable. They hardly ever actively work for, you know, their constituency. But theoretically, they're supposed to because those are the people that are voting for them, so they could lose those votes if they don't work on their behalf. But the Senate does not mm-hmm. have any of that, and that's I think that's mm-hmm. a really fucked up misuse of power. That for some reason we no, I we think is okay.
1: I fully think the Senate is stupid. I don't know yeah. why we have it. Like it just stems from a very like it's yeah. British, and it was basically like well, the illiterate it's masses a, can't vote or do anything. System. So we're gonna have yes. the House of Lords. Yeah, yeah. But I I do feel that the Supreme Court and the Senate are slightly different because like the Senate. We can't like bring an issue. I guess you could call your senator, but like what the fuck contact <laughs> like, they they just sit there and like vote randomly. Yeah. I don't know. Um whereas like the Supreme Court, you're supposed to be it's like a legal thing. So like you're supposed to be able to challenge things, which is not really what the Senate does. So then but then it also makes me think there's a lot of stuff the Canadian Supreme Court does that like the government then doesn't even listen to. Like the Supreme Court was the one who decided that like indigenous nations in Canada have like full Um, Responsibility over their traditional territories And then the government just went "Mm, I don't like that never mind we're not going to listen to that So like I don't know how closely they even follow The Supreme Court's decisions but it can Like uh, undo Like pretty heinous Government decisions Mm -hmm. but um, Like I think in Alberta when they tried to make that Like you know that law where if you like Went on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. they could be like You're protesting and we're going to arrest you I'm pretty sure like the Supreme Court stopped Mm -hmm. that I, or they were going to, or, like, people were expecting yeah, to stop they, it. I don't think They, I ever they said it would hold up. Yeah, so then, I'm like, is there a valid?" but then it's like, you see the Supreme Court do s- shit like this in the U.S., and you're like, what the fuck, well, this system makes no sense, like, it's horrible, yeah, so, in, I don't
2: know. Uh, to respond, I feel like there's there's two different sides to what you're saying here, uh, and one is mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, justice system side, which is, you know, there should be a way mm-hmm. for any any given citizen to reach the highest echelons of, you know, governmental authority and make their case. Uh, And I don't think anyone would disagree Mm -hmm. with that. Uh, But failing to acknowledge, and I feel like a lot of the the problem with the Supreme Court and the Senate or what have you, um, is uh, this failure to acknowledge the political nature of the justice system and of a Supreme Court judge, mm. uh, right. because it's it, there is this veneer of, you know, I am simply interpreting the law as it is written, and I am giving my judgment based on, you know, my expertise uh, in the same yeah. way that you would call in like a forensics expert. Uh, it's not s- motivated by any, you know, biases or beliefs. It's simply just the facts, ma'am, and that There's... is such horseshit. Mm and it's, it's always been horseshit there's never been a single supreme court judge in any country that is not motivated by the things that they believe uh and the policies that they want to see enacted in their country and to pretend that they are immune to that somehow just by the nature of wearing a robe uh is completely baffling uh do do you have like
1: like an alternative? I don't know, like, what, what would we do to depoliticize? I like, wouldn't depoliticize, I would of, acknowledge the political nature party. of it.
2: And I would have, you know, yeah, short set terms with, uh, you know, regular elections that occur completely, uh, you know, you could still have your checks and balances system, uh, I guess. Uh, but even even then, I, I'm starting to hesitate now just thinking about how, you know, we are at such a moment of
1: because that would be so political but it is
2: political i would think like i think can we not all agree that the supreme court is political just based on this decision alone and we Mm -hmm. may as well stop fucking pretending that it is because it's getting people killed but uh Mm. the sort of the checks and balances system of you know the senate the house the court what have you um you know exists to diffuse popular will Uh, And make sure that drastic things cannot be done very quickly, Uh, which works very well if you have a stable, you know, flatline political social situation that you're in. But we are facing unprecedented crises in the economy, Mm, in housing, in climate change, especially. Uh, And I feel like having checks and balances that slow the progress of new policies is a death sentence and the Senate should be abolished entirely. Uh, At the very least, everyone in the Senate should no longer be a senator (laughs) at the very least. Oh, Um, oh, okay. Same with the Supreme Court. Uh, No more court whatsoever. We can figure that out as we go along. But there's like drastic things need to be done. And if there's any hope for the country, uh, both ours and our neighbors to the south surviving we need to, you know, put away the these sort of like political cold feet of like, oh, like, you know, we can't do things too quickly. We have to, you know, have all of our ducks in the row. No. Right. We're in survival
0: state.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, obviously, it's time for like v- climate justice, like in every corner of everything that because like that's to me, the only ideology that really tackles every issue at once, because every one of these crises sees is interrelated mm-hmm. and it has to do goes with back like, to the earth. patriarchy yeah. and colonialism and like capitalism. And like they're all tied in and they all have this one problem like and it causes so many things. And I feel like we do need to tackle them all at once. And we're in a crisis moment and we need to tackle it now. But I feel like other people could turn around and be like, well, without checks and balances, like we also could have fascism in like point three seconds because fascism is another response to all these. Don't crises, care. Let's go to war. And also tries to incorporate like all of these things. But then I'm like, I don't want I don't think we have time to wait yeah. for a climate justice movement. Like we need one yesterday. Well that's so the thing is like know.
2: we've we've like, been in this stasis yeah. of like just politically nothing can happen. Just stalemate after stalemate except of course, you know, these major political victories for the right, uh, because they are willing to mobilize the base and they are mm. willing to skirt the these rules that are and norms that are in place in order to accomplish their agenda. And the left is clinically unable to do that. And that's how we get this gradual backsliding. So I think we should be willing to, you know, at at least skirt a norm or two, if not outright, completely rewrite how our government functions. But, you know, that's just my two cents. At least like if we're going to flip the coin on, you know, socialism or barbarism, Uh, and like actually see political change, I would at least like to flip the coin now rather than have another 20, 40 years of just immiseration. I think it's time to lighten the mood. This is a really heavy subject. We've all, at least, I feel like I've gotten the wind knocked out of me. Reading about this, but Jesse is here to uh, bring some levity and some some hope and joy to this episode, right? Actually, you know what?
3: Oddly enough, we were talking about
1: what? Uh, I got a round of applause.
3: Ooh. That's a long one. Yeah, that's a very long one. (laughs) That's the next 30 minutes.
1: No more Uh, (laughs) soundboards.
3: We were talking about, you know, alternatives to voting. Well, my question to you guys is what do you do? When voting is not an option, when you have been so deeply disenfranchised and marginalized by society that they're not literally in this case, you physically are not allowed to vote. Or if you are, the options afforded to you offer you nothing in terms of actual beneficial change. Well, in that case, I would ask someone else to vote for me. There you go. And if that fails, then it's time to take matters into your own hands. I recently read a book by Catherine Fogarty, who you may recognize the name because she worked on HGTV, I believe, Love It or List It, but she also is a social worker and now an author. So it's the weird social work to HGTV pipeline, which, you know, spells good things for my future. So
1: (laughs) I like both interior decorations. You could be such a good property, brother. Could we
3: pretend like you and I could pretend to be brothers? (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> property, uncle and nephew. Yeah, that's a da- drastically different show. So Catherine Fogarty wrote what I think might be the only good book on Kingston Penitentiary because, it. yes, there are sensational aspects, but she does a really good job of keeping the focus not only on inmates, but their fights for like civil and equal rights. So it's called Murder on the Inside, and I actually do recommend you pick it up because it talks specifically about the 1971 KP riot. It provides some context, but I'm going to provide some context for that riot, kind of discuss its significance as we recently had the 50th anniversary. Not 50 years, but 50 years since the first anniversary, right? That's how that works. So I'm tying it together. Let's, uh, let's talk about it. So we've talked about KP in the past, uh, mostly in reference to how monstrous corrections is. Correctional Service of Canada working hand-in-glove with law enforcement. Uh, Two terrible industries. Hate them both. Kingston Pen opens in 1835. Uh, For the first 100 years, literally 100 years, there are no recreation activities, nothing in the way of education. Uh, You would not be paid for your labor, so you had to build the prison and you weren't paid for it. You had to go to church every Sunday. You got, like, one bath a month. Really horrible place, like described immediately as hell on earth the worst place to be of course inmates were also subject to not only capital punishment you could be hanged for any number of crimes ranging from horse theft to of course sexual assault and murder as well as treason and poisoning
1: how do you steal a horse well no in i'm jail? just i'm Here just saying like a down. lot
3: of the people that were in jail were likely there for horse oh, <laughs> yeah. this is but you could still be sentenced <laughs> okay, to death like, uh,
1: they did have stables
3: fuck? like I did steal it, the they, horse they horse. also they put the horses in jail
2: too <laughs> I was
1: not if listening. they I had say. eaten too many
2: oats <laughs> or uh if they had been improper with a different white woman
1: mm. um
2: i they blamed the horse which i don't think is right but
3: yeah uh i will say
1: stop with these bestiality <laughs> jokes <laughs> It's not no, funny. funny. It's As, a white woman. <laughs> As a white <laughs> woman. <laughs> that's true. We didn't think about making
2: Clip that. Clip that.
3: <laughs> I'm a horse girl. I'm a white woman. Uh, so you could get whipped, beaten, uh, waterboarded. In fact, over 300 inmates were waterboarded at Kingston Penitentiary before it was finally outlawed. In the 1870s, after a prisoner in the United States died of a cardiac arrest because of waterboarding, but over 300 prisoners would be waterboarded in KP's history. That's fucking nuts. Glad we brought that back. Food and water deprivation. What I'm trying to paint the picture here is that Kingston Penitentiary, when it opened for the first 100 years, probably the worst place in the world. Just monstrous. Cells were three feet wide. So these poor conditions play into the first Riot that occurred there in 1932, which was organized by Tim Buck, leader of the Canadian Communist Party. Essentially, he organized a labor dispute, labor strike, where the inmates were like, we're not doing any more work until you meet our list of demands. A lot of them was just like quality of life improvements, the creation of recreation yard. And the thing that really set them over the edge is the prison outlawed rolling papers for tobacco because they saw some inmates use the papers to keep track of like gambling debts when they were playing poker in the prison. That was enough to just like off the table.
0: So fucking stupid.
3: Yeah. But they're like, no, nothing. You get nothing. So they organize this labor strike. The institution locks them in the shops and just like tells the guards break this no matter what. So it's just like they're beating the inmates. It's, it's a, it's a mess. Eventually they do manage to get like two of those concessions, which is rolling papers and a recreation yard. But uh, during the riot, the Canadian military, who were called on site to quell things, walked up to Tim Buck's cell and fired over a dozen shots in a three-foot box, hitting him zero times, which I think is in- <laughs> more incredible <just laughs> yeah. indicative of the Canadian military. But Tim Buck, when he was released, would use that as the big, like emotional centerpiece of his speeches for the Canadian Communist Party, which understandably uh, nineteen fifty four. Now, it's important to note that between 1932 and 1954, conditions actually did improve like a decent amount in the prison. They did get their rec yard. They did get some uh, programs and education. But the big issue that kind of affected them at this time was overcrowding. The 1950s, big period for overcrowding. Kingston Pen could hold about 600 people. Like at that time, they had over 950. They had guys double bunking, like crammed into these six six foot wide cells. Not a fun place to be. Uh, riot breaks out in August of 1954 in the shop dome area. They call in the military and the fire department. And during the like actual breaking of the riot, they discover like all these escape implement tools, including like a hundred foot length of rope. So the institution asks like, Oh, was this just an elaborate escape attempt? Uh, the answer is no, none of the inmates, even though they had the chance to do so went to the wall. And one of them said, Oh, what caused the riot? Well, here's the quote, which I think is very, uh, poetic. A prison is an active volcano churning and bubbling under the pressure of monotony and routine. I think prisoners riot because they can't help it. It's a natural response to an unnatural existence, which I think I like that. Perfect. It's the Mm -hmm. most accurate summation. So why am I telling you about these two? Well, I just want to give the proper context for the 1971 riot, because it's a perfect storm of events also involving the civil rights movement, and the creation of the prisoners' rights movement. Essentially, these guys who have been trapped on the inside in this absolutely crushing routine of monotony with terrible food, poor opportunities, and just overcrowding, are seeing all the social change that's taking place outside of the walls, and they begin to wonder how they can initiate some of that change within their own material conditions. And sorry, the simple answer is, not voting but taking matters into your own hands. And actually the 1971 riot begins explicitly as, and this is their words, a revolutionary act designed to shed a light on the inhumane conditions that prisoners face, not just in Kingston Penitentiary, but the entire system. So a four day stretch in April of 1971, April 14th to April 18th, begins on the Wednesday night the 14th, a man by the name of Billy Knight, which is an amazing name, that is like a movie main character name, And he's like Mm -hmm. a very smart, like well-spoken, politically radical guy. He and five accomplices uh, manage to get themselves into a line as they're leaving the gymnasium. And these six guys take two guards hostage in the gym and then another two guards hostage in the checkpoint beyond that. And finally, two more in the main dome itself, taking with them a set of keys for the lower level cells. They tried to get the upper level cell keys, but one of the guards, as he was being like taken down, just like whipped the keys down this administrative hallway to where the rest of the guards were. It was actually quite an impressive throw. And he just like, fucking chucked the keys. But still, now they've got six hostages, they've got keys to the lower level ranges, uh, they start letting out the guys in the lower levels, and then Billy Knight, like standing in the middle of this dome says, let me get the exact quote uh, Brothers, it's time you shake the shackles that have constrained you. And he's like explicitly telling them, "Like we are going to be free we are going to break loose we are going to shine a light on the inequalities in this system, and then all the lower level guys, since they don't have keys to the upper level ranges, start grabbing whatever they can find Some of them, with pure force and, like, leverage, would rip metal bars off the cells and then use those cells as pry bars to break the guys in the upper ranges out. Holy shit. At this time, you have about 640 inmates at Kingston Pen. About 550 of them are actively engaged in the riot but not every single inmate is released. There are segregation ranges on the first floor, which is where you mostly held sex offenders and inmates that were informants. So rats or snitches, that's going to become important in a few moments. But early on in this, uh, this riot, this uprising, It's actually rather, there's a lot of inmate solidarity. They've gathered together in the dome. One of the first things they did is smash this big brass bell that was used to mark the start and end of their workday and all inmate movement. Like It was a symbolic thing of them just smashing this, completely destroying it, and then basically putting up a sign saying, you know, new ownership. Uh, the guards that were taken hostage were put in a separate range. So the inmates that might've wanted to get their hands on them couldn't. So they had some leverage and they were protected by an inmate police force. And there's a lot in the book about like this inmate police force. It was like five, like extremely yoked guys that just like stood by the door <laughs> and were like, it's not happening, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, so one of the first things Billy Knight requests is an independent citizens committee to act as like uh, a negotiators. Essentially they wanted to meet with these people and then they would be corrections would not be involved in those meetings because they felt that corrections was of course going to be like, no, that's not true. And just interject and try and completely uh, well cover their own asses. So he requested various local journalists and spiritual leaders be present, including some members of the, uh, Law Association. So they had some pretty high profile lawyers. They had some journalists and they had these meetings pretty much once per day where they would discuss the inmate list of demands. They would offer assurances that none of the guards would be harmed. And as Billy Knight put it, he's like, there is no violence tolerated during this uprising, not inmate on inmate, not inmate on guard. And for the first two days, that was actually quite consistent. You would see the occasional... Uh, quarrel between inmates here and there, but by and large, the first two and a half days, there was a lot of solidarity being displayed, and there was a lot of really important negotiating being done. Now, it's important to remember the date when this happened, April 1971. We've talked about the October crisis on this show before, which took place in October of 1970. Didn't go so well for Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau or his Solicitor General Pierre or Jean-Pierre Goyer. Remember that was the military order, uh just a complete and total crackdown on civil rights. This happens less than six months after that. In fact, during this riot, Pierre Trudeau was on vacation with his wife Margaret. They're out in, you know, I think like Cuba or like somewhere mm. in the global south hanging what out. What was
2: she doing in Cuba?
3: Yeah, I don't know. Uh procreating. <laughs> a certain bouncing baby boy would be born a short time later. Uh so Trudeau basically just leaves this up to Jean-Pierre Goyer. He's like, yeah, you handle it. Do your thing. Goyer, and then, and I swear this is the guy's name. The commissioner for corrections at the time was a man named Paul Faguy, F-A-G-U-Y. <laughs> like I'm not, every time I read it in the book, I just went, huh, okay. Well, that's, I don't know how I'm going to pronounce this. But they're they're the ones who are like, essentially representing the government, you have the inmates representing themselves, and the Citizens Committee is like this neutral arbitration body. First two and a half days, everything goes well. But as time goes on, uh, the government makes it increasingly clear that they do not plan on negotiating with the inmates or taking any of their concerns seriously. I know, what a shock. And the lack of concessions arriving, even in this short period of time, makes the inmate populace start to turn against Billy Knight and then turn against each other. Essentially, they believe like, hey, we should be getting these things immediately, like right now, which is not really possible or feasible. But you can understand their frame of mind. It's hard to act rational in a completely irrational place. What would end up setting them over the edge was two main events. The military arriving on site, which the government said was just to like spell off the guards who had been working 24 hour shifts. But the inmates rightfully surmised that eventually the military was just going to invade and end the uprising. And also Jean-Pierre Goyer, even though negotiations at this time were going quite well, and there were some concessions being offered and accepted, Goyer went to the public, like the press, and just said, we're not going to accept any demands from the inmates. Like he said that, (laughs) which was then broadcast, Mm. Mm. and the inmates inside the prison heard this declaration and went, fuck. And essentially, that allowed the secondary splinter group who had a gigantic uh, beef with the guards and a lot of the people that were in the segregation range to just take control of the situation. They didn't manage to get the guards. They were protected by the inmate police force, but they did go down to that segregation range, break out 16 guys held down there, bring them to the center of the dome, place them in a circle, tie them to chairs and, and, There are no words, even in the book, like the most vivid descriptions, which she shies away from whenever she can do not do justice. But like these guys are brutalized. Mm. Uh, One guy, a man by the name of Brian Enser, who was a sex offender, but it was of the opinion of the courts that he should not have been found criminally responsible because a other than just going up to people and saying and like trying to solicit rude things. He really didn't do much because he had the functioning level of essentially a child. And uh, the other guy, Bertrand Robert, it's hard to describe him. If you search his name nowadays, you will find literally nothing. But in the 1960s, uh, he had one of the most famous cases in Canada at the time of child abuse, where he did some pretty iris, like just unbelievable things to his own children. So obviously not somebody I have a great deal of sympathy for, but another guy who probably shouldn't have been found criminally responsible for what was going on clearly was not all there mentally. And it speaks to the fact that when you don't know what to do with mentally ill people, even now, uh, the place they end up is prison. So Mm -hmm. these two guys get the worst of it. Uh, Brian Ensor is beaten so badly he would die on site. Uh, at one point an inmate, Cut a six-inch gash down the entirety of his thigh, like six inches wide, and another inmate, ew, and this ew, was uh, verified by several witnesses. Then took a cup and drank blood that had spilled out of Brian Enser's leg. And when this was revealed in the courtroom, uh, <laughs> like people were gasping, and one of the one of the women in like the section just like fainted, full out. It's like, oh yeah, he took mm. a cup and drank this guy's blood. It was. Unbelievable. Jesus. Bertrand Robert would die a few days, like a few weeks afterwards from just insane head force trauma. This was the Saturday night. And after this brutality, essentially the inmates, the citizens committee, they knew that this had to come to an end. They would release the guards, one guard for every hundred inmates or so. And what started as this like revolutionary act of inmate solidarity, mostly due to (laughs) government incompetence, let's say, and, the inhumane conditions that these people were forced into escalated into one of the ugliest moments, certainly in corrections history, and something that KP does not want you to know about at all. If you go on that tour, all they talk about for the 1971 ride is that it happened and that it ended. What they don't mention, for instance, is that after the inmates were escorted or transferred out of Kingston Pen, they arrived at Millhaven, where every single inmate was forced in leg irons and handcuffs to walk the gauntlet which was a long section of the hallway where all of the guards at Millhaven would beat them with sticks and batons as they walked. So badly, in fact, that several inmates wound up hospitalized. Billy Knight's skull was fractured. Uh, They don't mention that. In fact, eight guards would would face criminal charges where they were acquitted. Weird. Isn't that surprising? Mm. Yeah, very strange. The ringleaders who organized the beating and murder of the two, well, the 16 undesirables, incompatible inmates, and the murder of two of them, they would be put on trial uh, where they would receive sentences of three to five years for capital murder. Why did that happen? Well, essentially, the judge on the second day of the trial, and this was supposed to be like a months-long trial, met in secret with the prosecutors and the defense and just said, yeah, we're going to settle. We have to hear all the testimony, but uh, we're going to settle which also was an extremely controversial thing. And of course, at the end of all of this, uh, you might be familiar with Attica. Have you heard the expression Attica before?
2: There was a very Mm -hmm. famous documentary that came out uh, last year, uh, which was nominated for an Oscar. I have yet to see it, but it's on Crave. So it's on my
3: list there's also dog day afternoon, the Al Pacino movie where he screams about Attica, but essentially the Attica prison uprising was one of the largest in North America's history and took place about four months after the Kingston penitentiary riot. No shit. eh? And much of what was covered during the Attica prison uprising were inmate complaints about the way they were treated, uh, racial inequities in the justice system, living conditions, you name it. And what the interesting parallel is, Attica ended with the death of 43 people. Like It's a violent, unbelievably sad moment in the history of like the prisoners' rights movement. What Catherine Fogarty notes in the book, which I think is very apt, is what happened at Attica very nearly could have happened at Kingston Penitentiary, save the presence of the Citizens Committee. It was this group of like eight people, journalists, lawyers, and spiritual leaders who did more to end <laughs> this uprising before it escalated to those levels than corrections, Certainly Mm. than the military and certainly than the government itself. So I found this to be a very interesting little thing. Oh, I actually do have a bit of levity for you. I know it's kind of grim, but Billy Knight, the guy who orchestrated this revolutionary action. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. in the months after the riot, he was, of course, put on trial for organizing this uprising. In the months that followed, he cut his hair, he grew out a mustache and like a little beard. He showed up to court wearing a fresh. Like three-piece suit and glasses completely changed his appearance. So when the guards were testifying if they saw the ringleader of the riot in that room, (laughs) none of the six guards (laughs) pointed to Billy Knight. Oh my goodness! And because of that, he got off scot-free. He didn't funny technique you love (laughs) to see that and what's even and like what is even funnier is like on as they were approaching the final day of the trial like he was being transferred back to like millhaven and some of the guards that were working were like okay we need to like get this guy and shave his mustache like get his hair back to what it looked like before so they like took him put him in segregation and they were like coming in to like do all these physical changes or they sorry they uh, As he'd grown up the mustache, essentially they were just going to try and make him look like his mugshot so the next day in court they could present that. But he like, kept a piece of broken glass with him and used it to like, style his facial hair <laughs> so that it was like unrecognizable. Like This guy finagled everything. He also wrote a book called The Walking Dead, which is uh, not the graphic novel. But it's an interesting little memoir about the life of an inmate in the correctional system. And uh, if you're wondering what you can do, to protest against these massive injustices other than voting, which we've established, you know, it's the best thing you can do. It solves all the world's problems. But Mm -hmm. if you're in a position where voting is not a great way to make your voice heard, there are collective actions that can be taken. Now, I am actually, for the first time ever, not encouraging you to engage in a mass violent uprising. But I am reminding you that there are Mm -hmm. actions of solidarity that can be taken that although may not generate, and fully solve the problem. I will say in the wake of the 1971 riot, there were once again, concessions that were made, not just at Kingston Penitentiary, but across the entire federal system. One of the big requests the inmates had was essentially an inmate union, which was then implemented in the form of essentially like the inmates council. So you would have elected Mm -hmm. representatives from the inmate population that would then meet with administration once a month. They'd also control all the inmate canteen money. So they would be constantly speaking with the inmates, seeing like what they wanted to bring in, what events they could organize. They also improved the quality of education. Uh, essentially, the education was now similar to what you would find in like a normal provincial high school. Massive, massive change did come from this. So although it seems like, oh, well, you know, it ended, and it ended in the most brutal way possible, it wasn't a completely futile act. A great deal was accomplished by the actions of these prisoners. Now, mind you, a lot of things escalated out of control. But if I may make one more parallel, much like the demonstrations that we saw in 2020, mm-hmm. things didn't get violent, things didn't get fucked up, and things didn't get escalated until the presence of law enforcement or these yeah. government agencies stepped in. Yeah. <laughs> until the people everything with the possible. weapons showed up. Yeah. yeah and did everything yeah. possible to make it clear that they were not going to accept these concessions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, fun little section of Canadian history. But I just want to make it clear, Corrections has done everything in their power to bury every piece of information about the 1971 riot. And it's not just because two people died. It's because at the core of the 1971 riot, it was inmates protesting a entirely inherently evil and corrupt system. And it makes corrections look insanely bad that things had gotten to a point where the inmates felt that either they were going to make changes in the system or many of them were readily going to die when the military stormed the facility. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to corrections, and this is something Catherine Foerty hits on in the book, it took her like five years to even just get the records about what happened, like <laughs> historical records. Let's remember when I talked about prison for women, I literally had to email a retired journalist from like the Ottawa citizen and ask him to email me a file about prison for women. So uh, I just want to say corrections. You don't think about them often, which is what they want. Yeah. One they the they want to be humming along in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, mm. Abolish the system. Prisoners rights are a part of a civil rights movement and are they're human beings at the end of the day. So if there's one thing I want you to take home. Corrections is evil and inmates do have a right to fucking basic standards of living, regardless of what their crime is at the end of the day, you still need to be able to offer the people that are the most vulnerable and often the most forgotten about these same standards that needs to be applied to everybody. So that's my Agreed. little piece. Yeah. On well, the riots. What was the name of that book again? Murder on the Inside, which we can put in the description. I actually do highly recommend it. It does take a very human, like social constructivist approach to uh, the correctional system as well as the riots themselves. Like I was very impressed with how Catherine Fogarty presented the issues and how even when she was describing these immense acts of violence, she avoids the tendency to sensationalize and she avoids the tendency to even demonize. She's like, yep. This happened. This is beyond anything that could be considered acceptable. But here are some of the reasons why it happened. And she outlines the desperation that these individuals felt and uh, just how fucked up and shitty <laughs> the correctional system was. So I don't know. I, I, I'm i not sure if she's going to go back to love it or list it or what her plan is. <laughs> But uh, Catherine Fogarty, you get Jesse's "That's What's Up" of the week, and I'd like <laughs> you to call him that—not for what's sexual up, reasons, damn. but for historical reasons. Genuinely, <laughs> it's a very well-written book. I'm jealous. Yeah, it's always Shout one of the two. Uh, we- Shout
0: I- out to HGTV for that one. Yeah,
3: honestly, HGTV—we're radicalizing y'all. That's the new Teen Vogue,
1: and we're sure. Yes, it's she the same. literally <laughs> says it in
3: the book, <laughs> like it in the sleeve. Oh, okay, I actually—that's cool. because I'd never really heard her name until that. She's like, "Oh yeah, like." Social work and home and garden television. Honestly, she sounds like a variant of Megan, genuinely. (laughs) Like, I could see you getting into a similar thing. Woo! Uh, Yeah, uh,
2: I would also recommend, while we're recommending books, uh, Jimmy Lerner. Oh. Uh, Ha ha ha. Uh, No, there's a, a poetry collection. Uh, called It's All Part of the Punishment by this uh, guy, Jimmy Lerner, who yes, was imprisoned okay. in Nevada in, I want to say, like, the 70s? I think she mentions that. That sounds very Yeah, familiar. really, really good. Uh, I would recommend working your way through that. I'm a big fan of Fence Skeptic, but yeah, this is a poetry podcast now.
0: No.
1: Cool. I don't know yeah, anything about poetry. Well, Jesse, thank you for sharing, and I think we can Absolutely. call it a day. And we call it uh, a day, or so we don't we'll see you next week. Yeah. Thanks for listening. and Games bye-bye) have enough. <laughs>